tasty, tasty, tasty uh, microphone. Pop screen. Uh, <laughs> what, do you, what do you call this thing? Top a, screen? A pop, pop screen. A pop screen. But oh, we're, we're doing it. <laughs> oh, <laughs> shit. Because <laughs> every uh, time we um, start recording, after like, when we know we're going to, we have the same kind of just... I figured to see what came out. It worked. I like it. You should always <laughs> drop this without me knowing. <laughs> Ideally, without you knowing. We should just set a timer for some random number. <laughs> and just hope that it's recording. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but anyway, welcome to Super Duper Stitches. Paranormal podcast where we bring sciencey stuff to the spooky stuff. Perfect. Nailed it. I believe this week we are doing part two of last week's episode. We're all about extraterrestrials, yeah. aliens, abductions, Dead UFOs, ETs. all that good stuff. Jake, would you like to kick us off? Uh, yeah. So for starters, um, I did. I do want to do a, just a quick correction from last week. I mentioned in passing the Roswell incident, as one does when talking about this stuff. I said that it occurred in the 1950s. It was in 1947. You son of a bitch. Mm-hmm. But yeah, so uh, to take you guys all the way back to the end of last week's episode, we can all agree that UFOs, ETs, what have you, are a really fun and well-known pop phenomenon. Pop phenomenon. <laughs> but the question remains, are they really real? As mm. we discussed last week, a great many people have reported some pretty intense and sometimes even well-corroborated ET experiences, but these stories are also very outlandish and can be difficult to take any more seriously than as you know a run-of-the-mill myth. Right. That said, recent disclosures by the U.S. government and wide-ranging news media outlets have provided some seeming measure of affirmation for these phenomena. Yeah. And so they've been see- received as kind of like a crowning validation for those who subscribe to the existence of UFOs and extraterrestrials. However, there's still plenty to be skeptical about. You know, a major press release, statements from an authority, and, if you will, grainy high-tech footage do not empirical proof make mm-hmm. we have yet to get a chance at touching measuring or otherwise assessing them flying o's and them <laughs> extra t's <laughs> with the tools of proof and i mean that both figuratively and physically that we rely on to sort of scientifically resolve our reality we're both still at a stage where neil degrasse tyson left us which is call me when you have a dinner invite from an alien mm-hmm so if you haven't listened to part one, this part will still be fine. It's just more fun, I think, with the part one we go we go through actual stories of encounters and stuff. Yeah, don't and just jump in, guys. God damn. <laughs> go back to episode 13, part one. Episode 13, UFOs part one. Yeah, what Jake said. <laughs> um, so that's, that's where we are with UFO stuff now, extraterrestrial stuff now. In that light, we thought it would be cool to follow up on all these ideas to tackle the phenomena most often associated with UFOs and ETs. And talk a bit about what we do know regarding life on and off our planet. Oh yeah, what does it mean to be alive? How do we know life may be out there? And uh, what would contact with an extraterrestrial actually, probably, maybe look like? So get out your notebooks, friends. We gonna learn you. Get them out. <laughs> I'd like the adjacent to friends. <laughs> <That's cute. laughs> I made it gentler. Get out your notebooks, motherfuckers. We gonna learn you. <laughs> get out your notebooks. Bitch. <laughs> Bitches. Single person. You know who you are. You single listener who listens to the episodes many times over. So why would you like to uh, dive yes, in with some stuff I will start about with the phenomenon of abduction? I would love to. So to begin with, the most often reported sort of type of alien contact is that of a forcible abduction. So typically a person wakes up either in a different place than they had gone to sleep or with a strange feeling that some measure of time has been lost. So, for instance, they may last remember driving their car at 4 p.m., but now they're parked on the side of the road, and it's 10 p.m., and they have no memory of what occurred between those time points. So, as with the stories that I was telling last week, uh, much of what Zanfretta recalled had been sort of had to be released through hypnosis. Yeah. So he was, for whatever reason, unable to consciously pull the experiences to mind, other than like, oh, some weird shit happened to me. Um, What's going on, guys? Yeah. So, you know, while Zanfretta's accounts are frightening, his interactions with the alien forms are relatively tame in the wider realm of E.T. events. In that light, it's no accident that the first joke most people make when they hear about an alien abduction, some kind of surgical examination. Mm-hmm. In other words, in many cases, ETs seem intent to probe for the answers <laughs> in every sense of the word. Butt stuff. 
Um, they will have ifs, ands, and buts <laughs> for science. <laughs> so, yeah, the idea of abductions is a very common version of the alien encounter. And stories of abductions just became more and more frequent all throughout the 20th century. Mm-hmm. In response to the growing number of these reports of people being taken by ETs and oftentimes experimented upon, a psychiatrist from America named John E. Mack decided to start examining these accounts and taking them more seriously. I wish he would say his name really fast, like, my name's Johnny Mac. Hey, I'm Johnny Mac. I'm Johnny Mac. <laughs> I'm totally a psychiatrist. <laughs> you want to buy some drugs? So starting in the early 1990s, Mac began a study of 200 supposed abductees. These were men and women, um, just a whole bunch of different people he could round up who had some kind of encounter type of situation. Some sort of creepiness. Yes. His study would go on for over a decade. Hmm. Uh, his initial assumption was just that these people all had some kind of mental illness, maybe even one that they all had in common, mm-hmm. that would lead to their reports of being abducted. Hmm. Uh, however, when he interviewed a bunch of these people, none of them showed obvious signs of any particular mental illness. Uh-huh. He you know, had years of experience as a psychiatrist. He was trained to look for this kind of stuff. Didn't right. see it. Hmm. So literature professor Terry Matheson wrote that, quote, on balance, Mac does present as fair-minded an account as has been encountered to date, at least as these abduction narratives go. Mm. Psychologist Jeffrey Mishlove said that Mac seemed, quote, inclined to take these reports at face value. Mac responded, quote, face value, I wouldn't say. I take them seriously. I don't have a way to account for them. Mm-hmm. The BBC um, quoted Mac as saying, I would never say, yes, there are aliens taking people. I would say there is a compelling, powerful phenomenon here that I can't account for in any other way that's mysterious. Yet I can't know what it is, but it seems to me that it invites a deeper, further inquiry. Hmm. So the following is just uh, directly from the Wikipedia page of all this stuff. Mac noted that there was a worldwide history of visionary experiences, especially in pre-industrial societies. Hmm. Uh, One example is the vision quest common to some Native American cultures. Okay. Only fairly recently in Western culture, notes Mac, have such visionary events been interpreted as aberrations or as mental illness. Uh, Mac suggested that abduction accounts might best be considered as part of this larger tradition of visionary encounters. So a huh. similar kind of phenomenon, just in a new context. Right. Even So even if it's outside of like a cultural heritage, right? it might be just a, a thing people experience in that way. Yeah. Go on. Um, so his interest in the spiritual or transformational aspects of people's alien encounters and his suggestion that the experience of alien contact itself may be more transcendent than physical in nature, yet nonetheless mm. real... Right. Uh, set him apart from any of, of his contemporaries, such as Bud Hopkins, who advocated <laughs> the physical reality of aliens. So is he saying, like, they're having some kind of experience, but it's more so, like, mental than it is... Yes. Like, oh, I actually got abducted. And he's saying it's not necessarily, you know, an actual, like, something wrong with them. It's just something that is happening to them that isn't literally true, but is very real to them. Waking dream type shit. Yeah. His later research broadened into the general consideration of the merits of an expanded notion of reality, one which allows for experiences that may not fit the Western materialist paradigm, Hmm. uh, yet deeply affects people's lives. So, long story short, Mac concluded that abductions are as real as real can be for the victims, but that they can be likely attributed not to aliens, but to some phenomenon of the human experience that has persisted for centuries, even if we haven't yet identified exactly what that is uh-huh so it's just some kind of he's just uh, his conclusion was that people have some kind of weird experiences like this it's been happening for ages right it's been um you know identified in different ways as like right. the spirit quest or in this case as abductions but somehow people are just feeling like this stuff's happening interesting man i like that theory very much i mean i know in some cases people have like returned from well, okay quote air quotes all over the place returned from their abduction experience with like new scars or yeah these kinds of things but the i also common know one is scoop marks like scoops have been taken out of parts of them which is scoop this. <laughs> that's what i'd say if i came back from an abduction yeah. like well clearly you've made peace with your situation yeah exactly dude it's right in the center of your face i know scoop there it is pointing at your face yeah. you say it? oh i could just carry a tiny pool of water in my face now <laughs> Um, so yeah, there's like ideas of scars. People say, oh, there's some kind of implant. And oftentimes the implant story is like, oh, there's a, there's this metal thing in my leg now or something. Oh, and then right. they'll say that they had it tested and that it was there. And then when they get tested again, it's gone. Ooh, mysterious. Yeah. Or sometimes they say, oh, I had another abduction experience. And at that point, 
the implant is gone. Right. Um, I actually think my great aunt may have claimed that very same story. Whoa. I got to look into it. We should that. have her on. But yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if uh, she's Susan, not- if you're listening... We want you to come talk to yeah, us. Please don't get abducted in the meantime. Yes. Or do. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, but take take good notes when you do. Yeah, yeah bring a little notepad. <laughs> um, but yeah, like you said, people, there are sometimes like at least claims of physical evidence of the abduction having occurred. Right. But more often than not, like you said, it's lost time. It's um, things that could be chalked up to a bunch of different other kinds of phenomena right i mean sleepwalking we mentioned sleep paralysis in previous episodes how that can take a whole lot of different forms because a lot of abductions happen when people are in their bedroom true yeah it's a nighttime occurrence more often than not yes and as we also mentioned last week as well one of the explanations offered for this stuff is that it fits into a kind of a folklore paradigm yes so the idea like you know a lot of different kinds of stories told all over the world and all kinds of different cultures throughout history have similar kinds of details and like the idea of weird visitations or just weird occurrences they always happen at night right as ray charles put it nighttime is the right time to <laughs> get uh, abducted <laughs> yes classic ray charles yes but uh yeah so that's <laughs> that's just an interesting kind of take on abductions from a really cool professional um person so he was also cool because he um before all this happened he was one of several major like well-known oh nice very nice thank you uh one of several well-known socks sorry (laughs) (laughs) so just so you know that's amazing i just uh while jake was dutifully talking about his topic i flashed him my awesome sasquatch socks and then that was like which com- my friend Ben gave me. Ben, if you're listening, thank you again. That was one of the most textbook Freudian slips <laughs> ever. I'm just looking at the socks, trying to say I don't even remember what word now. Um, yeah, professional, uh, different scientific professionals back in the day who came out against um, nuclear war during the Cold War, saying, you know, calling for disarmament and um, yeah, destruction of all nuclear weapons. Uh, right. And, and John Johnny Mac. Uh, John E. Mack Johnny was, Mac, was yep. one of the um, one of the people doing that, and, and also Carl Sagan was another. Right. Um, okay. Cool. And so that was during the Cold War, and then when this was happening, at some point, a separate—I think he worked for Harvard or at Harvard—and was a tenured professor there. Mm. And um, some people decided, in, uh, because of his um, his research into abduction stuff, they decided to conduct an investigation on his soundness as like an academic. Say, like, oh, is he? Really, uh-huh. like, he seemed like he's a crackpot. The stigma and eventually ended up being dismissed, and like the and like Harvard came out. Like he ended up having a lot of support, and um, in the end, it was like okay, this this investigation wasn't really conducted very like it wasn't done in a fair way, sure. and and it's not done for fair reasons. And this guy is fine. Like he he earned his tenure, like everyone else. Right. So leave him alone. Right. <laughs> <laughs> he can be a little crazy and still do his job, guys. Come on. Exactly. That's what tenure's all about. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you can stay as a professor, keep getting paid, right? Until you're completely senile. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And then they uh, retrench your department, and you're just <laughs> out of there. <laughs> that's uh, so that's kind of the the sort of extraterrestrial experience that's happening <laughs> on or near Earth, right? Um, all having to do with alien life forms and stuff. Um, so now we can talk about if you are into it, we can talk about the idea of just life in the universe in yeah, general. What the heck is it? Yeah, and so, you know, we talk about life coming from from the stars, coming from other planets, coming from all these different places. The whole idea of alien life in general relies on the idea of life evolving elsewhere in the universe. Right. You know, um, life coming from from the stars, etc. Right. Um, so, first off, when talking about life, people almost always make some sort of reference to DNA, and they always also call it the building blocks of life. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But they never really explain how that works. Like, right. what, why is it the building blocks of what life? What the heck is going on there? Yeah. DNA, deoxyribonucleic acid, is a molecule that looks kind of like a twisted ladder, a double helix, if you will. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It consists of two 69ing strands that are held together through interactions between the you know, kind of rungs of the ladder in between them. Right. So these rungs are called nucleotides, and they match in very specific ways. Right. Um, so they, you know, you've seen the letters A, T, G, and C. Um, a matches to T, C matches to G. And they specifically do that and only that. They, you can't really match them up to the wrong one. Uh, because they can only go together in specific ways and are truly stable only when paired, 
Um, one strand can act as a template for a copy of its complement. And right. the order of nucleotides on a strand are thus copied in the exact same order. Ideally. Yes. So there can be mistakes. That's where we get mutations from. The order creates a code that actually does stand for specific stuff, specifically amino acid chains that make proteins, but that doesn't matter. The real point of right. DNA is to create copies. That is its only goal, to make more of itself. Uh, the goal is so simple because it is, I mean, it's its really mindless. As a, at a molecule, of course, you know, you really can't make decisions to make certain actions. Right. If, it, if it has some kind of directive, we don't know it yet. Yeah, there's, there's no mechanism by which it would be able to decide things. And if it right. could, it wouldn't fuck up so much all exactly. the time. Exactly. Like within an organism, you can get variations in DNA regulation, but that comes after. That's super post DNA unto itself as a thing. Oh, for sure. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, DNA itself formed by accident. And when it did, it started accidentally making copies because the complementary pieces kind of just glommed onto it and formed their own matching chain in the same order. And that new chain did the same thing. It's, it a, it's a Lego set that's building itself. Exactly. And it's building itself just based on how stuff is attracted to itself. I mean, most chemical reactions involve just how how different types of elements and stuff interact. You can kind of think of it like magnets. It's not magnetic, but it's in terms of how things are attracted to s- in certain ways. I never knew how those things fucking worked. They're though. magic. Oh, uh, okay. But um, in terms of how molecules will interact with each other, if there is an attraction to certain parts based on certain charges and stuff, they will um, you know, end up sticking together and stuff. And so spontaneously yeah dna pieces came together and would keep making copies and as it continued to make copies dna created an environment full of more of itself doing that same thing then different variants maybe had characteristics that could make them even more efficient at duplicating Mm -hmm. then those in turn became more abundant than others and that's evolution that's it things making more of themselves occasionally accidentally changing up a bit and if the change makes them suck less, there'd be more of them until right. they largely replace what isn't them. Right. And that's where the changes kind of come from. The environment around the thing attempting self-replication sets the bar for whether that process is either a success or a failure and can thus quickly shape the resulting organism. Uh, this right here is what folks mean by natural selection. Oh, yeah. I'm talking about just DNA here and deliberately skipping over RNA because not everyone has heard of that. But in a nutshell, RNA is like a single-stranded version of DNA. Right. Like just half the ladder down the middle. Um, And most likely that came about first. And then DNA kind of came later. Sure. There are two main theories then about how life on Earth evolved. I just described kind of part of one. Mm -hmm. So that one holds that genetics were the first component of life to develop. It's called the RNA world hypothesis. And holds that RNA and later DNA you know, formed accidentally, as I described, and then eventually the strands started to act as templates not only for more of themselves, but right. for proteins. And then that would start to kind of build up stuff. One proteins cool f- being much more complex in structure. For sure. Folding 3D. So we're moving from, like, well, I guess maybe a Lego strand into a, an erector set connect kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> sort the of metaphor's kind of. getting away from us. I know, I'm sorry, go on, go on, carry on. <laughs> One cool thing about RNA, uh, as opposed to DNA, is that it can also act as an enzyme. Like, it's, it has chemical reactive properties to it, so it can kind of get shit going in terms of chemical reactions, mm. which makes it that much more likely to just kind of make things happen. S- set something off. In the early stages of Earth. Uh, if any of these RNA dealies became self-contained, say, in a membrane of some kind, they'd likely be protected and better able to do their thing. If one accidentally gained the ability to make its own membrane... Hot damn. Mm. Uh, that would be sure to duplicate like crazy. And they would be perhaps going insane within that membrane. <laughs> yeah. And later on, within the, in brain. the brain. <laughs> Indeed. Uh, that, so if you have this kind of like some kind of genetic material inside of a membrane duplicating more of itself, it sounds an awful lot like a very simple cell, doesn't it? It does indeed. So these could then crank out a bunch more of themselves and maybe make some proteins to boot. And those proteins might serve some kind of function sometimes and help the thing be even better at making more of itself. And from there, you can tell I'm just describing evolution again. Uh, God damn it, just (laughs) describing evolution again, Jake. Uh, The second theory about how life on Earth evolved is called the protein world hypothesis. And this goes the other way and suggests that amino acids (laughs) formed first. Life started at a GNC. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, It suggests that amino acids formed first again accidentally and as the result of basic chemistry and then linked up to form proteins and when amino Mm -hmm. acids kind of get together in a chain 
Um, eventually that chain is like a big long linear thing and then like you said it folds over on itself into a 3D shape and that's a protein. Right. These then acted as enzymes and started metabolism and then RNA and DNA would later stumble into the mix and start coding for those specific proteins to do those specific metabolic things. So it could have gone either way. These types of molecules at some point on earth formed accidentally and then started kind of working in tandem and cool stuff happened eventually living stuff and again life is just making more of yourself right and eventually things got more complicated accidentally stumbled across new strategies to do that right and uh that brings us to where we are today with all these different kinds of living things and i'm guessing this is sort of this is assuming earth was not seeded from elsewhere as well that's one other theory too the two main ones for you know an earth-centric origin of life here on this planet are are those two there's also the panspermia um mm-hmm. theory which is the idea that okay those kind of molecules came from somewhere out in space and then landed here and then took off and kind of continued that same process right right and we can get it we'll get into that a little later yes uh, so what's cool about all of this is the fact that the components for making life in this specific way are abundant and the process is actually really goddamn easy right uh for example there's the 1953 miller urey experiment where methane, ammonia, and hydrogen were kept together. It's like some kind of, you know, glass uh, containers. Sealed, stuff, yeah. sealed yeah. up thing. They were heated and then zapped. And out of that, amino acids formed. So just putting that stuff together and then adding heat and electricity, that made it happen. Early Earth looked pretty similar to that, including the temperature mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. frequent lightning storms and stuff. Right. Think of here about the, the term primordial soup. There you go. Has that kind of that kind of stuff to it. Basically, what you need to make life as we know it on Earth is carbon, hydrogen, oxygen, nitrogen, sulfur, and phosphorus. Right. Those are very abundant elements throughout the universe, and uh, when you put them together, it doesn't take too much of just random shit happening for those to become cool molecules. Right. Oh, yeah. Now, we know that amino acids and all sorts of other so-called biomolecules are abundant even within our own solar system. Like you said, the, the whole panspermia thing, stuff coming to Earth from elsewhere. Right. Absolutely possible, because we know it already is elsewhere. The True components enough. for the process are all there in many parts of the universe. And so the natural question is, why don't we see extraterrestrial life more frequently? If all the building blocks are there, wouldn't we expect to see at least some signs of life on, say, even planets, but then our own solar system. I was just going to ask that. (laughs) I preempted it. (laughs) Um, So a lot of this has to do with planetary composition and the variations in temperature within a planetary system. And now by planetary system, I mean the planets that are orbiting around a star or perhaps set of stars because sometimes you can have a sort of a tattooing situation a tattooing. The binary <laughs> yes a binary exactly so some of the largest planets in our system and elsewhere are gas giants so we can think of jupiter or saturn as good examples these are massive massive planetary bodies but they're mostly made up of hydrogen and helium mm. and so they may have some sort of core to them that is mineral but it's effectively perpetually molten and uh you know you can't really land a thing on it yeah so these places are extreme um they're caustic and uh you know life just wouldn't really take root even if it was to spontaneously you know we might get some building blocks in place just through chemical processes but things aren't really taking shape there yeah the planets themselves are basically just gaseous bodies and as it's you kind of approach like all atmosphere all much. atmosphere exactly and down down towards any kind of surface the pressure is so incredible that mm. it would be just uh just simply too extreme yeah other planets are ice giants um so called because in astrophysics the term ice typically refers to volatile chemical compounds with freezing points above 100 kelvin which for you at home would be negative 280 degrees Fahrenheit or negative 173 Celsius. Mm-hmm. Pretty damn cold. Yes. So scientifically speaking, yeah, still fucking cold as hell. <laughs> um, in our system, uh, the ice giants are Neptune and Uranus. Jake. Yeah, you see what I is. did there? I think I'm the first person to do that. <laughs> Much of the compounds that formed the ice giants, including plenty of water, were solids when they initially aggregated into this planetary body. But because of the intense pressure exerted by the planet's huge mass, they now exist in what is known as a supercritical state. Hmm. 
So this is a bit of a tangent, but I thought it was very cool. Um, yeah. <laughs> no pun intended. <laughs> um, water on Neptune, for instance, is considered to be a supercritical fluid. So compounds reach a supercritical state when they are heated under very high pressure. So effectively, the heat is high enough that they are attempting to reach a gaseous phase, but the pressure is simultaneously high enough that the gas is compressed back towards a liquid. Okay. And so supercritical fluids can effuse through solids like a gas, but they can also dissolve materials like a liquid. Wow. They're pretty incredible. Um, but again, they only form under exceptionally extreme conditions. So there's um, an example you can even look up for yourselves online if you sort of search around for supercritical fluids where you basically see this camera shot of a tiny pressure chamber and they will have a small portion of uh, liquid in there, either liquid uh, carbon dioxide um, or water even, and they'll heat that up and as it reaches its boiling point, it sort of turns into this strange sort of sort of looks like vapor kind of looks like condensation on window on a mm. window pane but it's like roiling and boiling around it's really interesting that is interesting you know even the elements that you might need for life to spark and begin uh remain very inhospitable in these types of planets yeah and lastly as far as the the main three forms uh we have rockier terrestrial planets or moons for that matter though these are relatively teensy compared to gas and ice giants they actually provide the literal terra firma we would need to live on or to begin some sort of life and again like you mentioned the idea of these huge atmospheres the gas giants the reason you need to have something more like solid ground or some kind of you know surface for life to be able to form as far as we know anyway is just the fact that you have to have some place where molecules can interact right absolutely true without being completely obliterated <laughs> however within our solar system at least other than earth the other planets that we have are either too hot such as mercury or venus or too cold at this point mars mm. uh, for life to take hold uh, further planets of this kind though in general provide a meaningful area in which to establish what they would call a planetary hydrosphere or put in simple crude english carbon-based life requires a shitload of water <laughs> So Earth, surprise, surprise, is a great example of a rocky planet with a great hydrosphere. Most of you likely already know that about 75% of our planet's surface is covered in ocean. Um, admittedly, on Earth, most of the readily accessible water is salty, but this is certainly not a deal breaker for the establishment of life by any means. Right. And uh, though many planets, you know, t the terrestrial rocky type may have some measure of water moons as well for that matter yeah the amounts may be insufficient and or in a state less conducive to life so you know we can think of mars for instance we increasingly understand the amount of water that is still on mars but it is basically all in an, a form of ice yeah is it europa or enceladus the moon uh, that has like an outer surface of of solid ice and then underneath I want to say Europa. Okay. But underneath it has it. like liquid liquid water just based on right. the heat from the core of, of the moon itself right. is keeping it liquid. Yes. Subsurface. Subsurface ocean. Subsurface ocean. <laughs> Subsurface ocean. This is on Europa? Yes. Cool. Then, then Titan, Titan, oh, yeah. or, um, which is one of the moons of Saturn, has um, methane and stuff all over. Liquid rivers of methane as oh far as interesting know. i wonder how that would play yeah it's it just so you know, i think i mentioned the idea of yeah, biomolecules and things like that being different places and but yeah what a weird form for that to be for it to be so cold true that's um, true yeah so yeah like you said i don't know what that would mean for the chemistry of it but still to have yeah all these different sort of landscapes out there um so speaking of which our earth is as much a product of this sort of suitable composition as it is a product of some planetary good fortune. Mm -hmm. So our planet rests within the so-called Goldilocks zone, yep. um, which is an affectionate term for what is more accurately called the Circumstellar Habitable Zone, or the CHZ. CHZ, okay. Uh, both of these terms refer to the range of orbits around any star within which life might be expected to take hold, as you might, you know guess from the Goldilocks reference, it's not too hot and not too cold. Cool. 
I just rhymed. Um, I didn't mean to. <laughs> uh, so, right. In this range, uh, planetary surface is expected to support liquid water given sufficient atmospheric pressure. This is kind of critical. This is also partly why Mars is considered largely inhospitable, despite being technically within the Goldilocks zone within our own solar system. So Earth is kind of towards the close end towards the sun, sort of the warm end of the Goldilocks zone. Yeah. Mars, by contrast, is right on the far end, um, still within the con- conservatively acceptable range. But despite having quite a bit of water on its surface and being within the Goldilocks zone, the Martian atmosphere is incredibly thin it's only around 0.6% the pressure at sea level as on Earth. Oh, wow. It's also composed primarily of carbon dioxide as opposed to nitrogen mm. on Earth. Yeah. That's part, in part why perhaps we don't see life on Mars these days. The exciting aspect in all of this is that many Earth-like planets have been detected in the habitable zones of other systems. Three planets, Kepler-62f, Kepler-186, and kepler 442b are considered relatively likely candidates as potentially habitable each is a mere 1200 490 and 1120 light years away so (laughs) a bit of a jaunt um but still they rest within their respective sort of goldilocks zones and they appear to be earth-like in that they're you know terra firma relatively earth-like size in fact uh, Kepler 186f is 1.2 Earth radius, so it's okay. basically the same size as Earth. That's cool. All things considered, if you, get, if you have like a um, you know a solid like a terrestrial planet that isn't a gas giant, but it's too big, that's going to be just kind of crushing levels of of gravity that could screw the up gravity would be, too. Would be much too high. Although I if have you have some, if you have oceans there, then it might not matter. But true, true, and there are many cases of things even on earth surviving under incredible pressure uh we'll get into that later i suppose yeah but um so the goldilocks zone good stuff now a lot of what we're discussing here is also based on a very earth-centric view of what we we know of how life can look um that is you know carbon-based organisms they got their dna etc the goldilocks zone is kind of brought into to include all of what makes sense for life Oftentimes, we're talking about carbon-based life. Right. And that's another term that gets thrown around a lot without explanation, carbon-based life. I mean, we threw it around ourselves already. Um, So what exactly does that mean? It has to do with the definition of an organic molecule. It's simply any molecule that involves carbon by itself or in chains or in rings uh, bonded to hydrogen. All sorts of other cool stuff can be bonded on there as well, but in order to be considered organic you got to have that carbon and hydrogen. Uh, so it doesn't sound so impressive when you hear about organic compounds on other <laughs> planets now, does it? Woo! It's like, okay, there's hydrocarbons. Right. Um, so the fact that living things on Earth are comprised of all these organic molecules is the reason we say carbon-based. Right. You know, most of the molecules that make up our bodies and everything, you know, are some kind of organic molecule that has carbon as its kind of uh, main component there. But what makes carbon so damn special? Yeah, what the hell, man? Uh, mainly, it can make bonds in four places on each atom. Oh. Uh, it can bond to other carbons, and most of all, it's small and light. Mm. Uh, all that makes it not only very versatile for forming cool compounds with cool structures, uh, but also very amenable to being messed around with in chemical reactions. That is, smaller atoms, um, they make for smaller molecules, which are effectively easier to manipulate. I mean, it's kind of, hmm. you can't quite say, you know, atoms and stuff are... Just like stuff at the macro scale that you can handle with your hands and stuff, but right. in the same kind of sense of something is too big to move around easily. That you kind said of same more flexibility of application given their smaller size. Yeah, yeah. So when a molecule is smaller, when an element, when the atoms of it are smaller, it can more readily react in a faster way, and that it makes it easier for a lot of different cool chemistry to occur. And so mm-hmm. then changes can mm-hmm. happen that may be necessary for life. There's also some buzz about the idea of silicon-based life. So silicon is the next element down in the same group as carbon on the periodic table, which means it has a lot of similar bonding and chemical properties to carbon. Right. And to clarify, we say silicon-based life. That doesn't mean robots, if you think yeah, of like computers right. having <laughs> silicon chips. <laughs> it also shouldn't be confused with silicone. Uh, silicone <laughs> Silicone-based yeah, life. Yeah. It's oh, just a man. bunch of sex toys. <laughs> um, silicone is a um, polymer made from 
some kind of silicon based chain of can't remember exactly what it is but it sure. does it does include it's like a silicon and oxygen type of monomer that when polymerized is silicone i don't totally remember what it is but uh, but silicon itself is yeah it's an element it is used to make computer chips and stuff right silicon based life doesn't mean computer based life it just means life with silicon as the main component of its molecules much in the same way that um, carbon itself goes into so so very many products that yeah, we when use. Yeah, when you think you think of carbon-based life, you think of just life on Earth. You don't think right. of diamonds, diamonds and graphite exactly. and charcoal. <laughs> carbon fiber, even. Yeah, it's in the name. Damn it, buckyballs, buckyballs. Yeah. So silicon has a lot of similar properties to carbon, but it's also bigger and heavier. Uh, it's more prone to sticking together with itself in kind of a mesh instead of in a chain like carbon does. Which in you know in a mesh shape doesn't really leave much room for other stuff to bond on there. Sure, um, but it's also way more reactive than carbon is, which mm. could mean that it would still do way better at um, at reacting and stuff, especially in colder temperatures than carbon can. Sure, uh, which expands the range of where life might be possible. So we mentioned like yeah That's the idea cool. of on Titan or something where there's liquid methane and stuff. Right, silicon based like it's at such low temperatures, silicon could still be reactive. Oftentimes, reactions are slowed down by getting colder. So if something's still reactive at a, at a lower temperature, that's pretty cool. So silicon is totally possible, just maybe not as consistently reliable as far as we know right. as carbon is for the kind of work that goes into a living system. It's also totally possible that the characteristics of both carbon and silicon that we find so important aren't mm-hmm. quite as critical as we think. Uh, other sure. lightweight elements form versatile molecules. So there are still other left field directions that this stuff could go. We're just going with what seems the most chemically likely based on what, what we can seen. study of, of what elements are out there and how they work. Right. And to that very end, so what about the real ETs, mm. carbon-based or otherwise, you know, short of the U.S. government dragging out some previously undisclosed bodies to go <laughs> with their purported footage? We don't really have much outside of sci-fi props. But, you know, we kind of sort of maybe do. Mm. Um, so I'd like to introduce everyone out there to the extremophiles. Yeah. They are very terrestrial. They are very earthbound organisms that thrive in conditions simply far too extreme for pretty much anything else. And they aren't just rebranded uh, properties to be more appealing to kids in the 90s. Yeah, exactly. More exciting. <laughs> Man, that would so work, though. <laughs> Extremophiles. Yogurt. <laughs> to the extreme. These environments can include any that are very high in acidity, heat, or pressure. Those that are exceptionally deprived of heat, nutrients, energy, or stability. I highly recommend people go on Wikipedia to check out the Extremophile page as it features a very nice list of the most caustic known environments on Earth. Um, alongside their well-known residents. It's pretty cool. It's very cool. Uh, most of them are bacteria, which is what I'm going to talk about now. So the most widespread and well-documented extremophiles are microbes, um, while perhaps not the most charismatic of biota. Bacteria are incredibly flexible and adaptable as a group, and they've been found basically everywhere on earth that's the funny thing about when people talk about finding life on other planets or finding life you know somewhere out in space people always think oh they're gonna we're gonna find like an alien is gonna like make contact with us like, it'll be we're like, gonna look yeah. for we're gonna find a microbe it's a single cellular or the equivalent of a cell some kind of just tiny little thing doing it'll, its thing it'll be like green slime on a rock yeah scientists have found viable terrestrial bacteria that are 40 million years old and resistant to radiation damn bacteria have been found living in a cold dark lake under half a mile of ice in antarctica speaking of europa and bacteria are also likely living even in the marianas trench which is the deepest place in all of earth's oceans it's like seven and a half miles down is that right i that it's sounds least, about right it's about seven if not more and down there but the challenger deep is the like challenger the deeper, deep deepest indeed. part of the marianas trench did you know the first time they sounded the depth of the marianas trench they used a weighted rope really isn't that crazy it's huh. not the most accurate means, but they literally just took a long-ass string with a rock on the end, pretty much. All right, boys, let's see when this thing stops. <laughs> you got to tie another one on there. Yeah, exactly. This one isn't long enough. Boys, take off your shoes and shoelaces. <laughs> we need them. 
<laughs> Down at the bottom of the Marianas Trench, things experience 15,750 PSI. Jeez. That's more than a thousand times standard atmospheric pressure. Wow. Literally every square inch of you would feel over a thousand times more weight than it does now atmospherically. Which is a decent amount of weight. It's a decent amount of weight. You would be flattened. There have been a couple different uh, attempts to get down to, like, to take a submersible down to the bottom of the Challenger Deep. I think the most recent and most successful was uh, James Cameron a little while ago. Oh, the Cam he's, Man. Yeah, he's just so into that stuff. But um, there was one attempt going down, and it was cool they had... He's still looking um, for the Titanic, huh? I think it may have <laughs> moved. Um, <laughs> now, uh, some, a different group went down um, quite a while earlier, and their craft, it was a neat thing where they had um they had ballast to pull them down and then they had um something buoyant to pull them up and i think it was a tank of gasoline oh jesus because instead of instead of air because air would have not had enough pressure it's compressible so the pressure down there would have crushed the container itself oh wow So by filling it with with buoyant liquid instead it was not compressible Ah. and so yeah so they went down for a while they kept sinking and sinking and before like well before they reached the bottom there's a loud bang. And they're like, well, I think we're okay as far as I can tell. Let's keep going. And they kept going. Oh, my God. What? And they got to the bottom. And then they hit the bottom and kicked up a whole bunch of sediment because they hit the bottom. Right. And they turned the lights and tried to look outside. And because of how dense the water is down there with all that pressure, that's the cool thing about buoyancy. It's a matter of just matching density. So if something is less water, dense, then Water is actually float. 5% more dense down there. Go on. Have you ever seen like photos of shipwrecks that have, or like um, submarines that have sunk so deep? You see like a, a safe just suspended in the water oh, because yeah. it's reached neutral density, like a metal safe. Oh shoot! So cool. Um, so because they kicked up all the sediment and because the density of the water is so ridiculous <gasps> down there, the sediment just would not settle. It oh just took forever. my god! So they waited for a while to see because they want to see what was down there, but right. the sediment wasn't settling, and they're still like, you know, something happened before we got down here. We really, <laughs> all right, we got to go. So they they Let's took off, they went back here, up, yeah. and when they got to the surface, they found that a huge crack had formed on the outside of their capsule and just didn't continue to grow. So they survived. Whoa! But, yeah. Oh my gosh. <laughs> How freaky so I would then, be. Yeah, then years later, um, I think James Cameron may have been the next attempt to go down there. I'm not positive. Certainly, he was the most successful attempt as far as the crap because he just has a shitload of money and yeah. throws it at that stuff. So I was like, okay, yeah, you make some terrible movies, but you do also fund cool research. Yeah, thanks, James. Okay, look forward to the next 10 Avatar movies. Yeah, exactly. I'm surprised you haven't released one yet. So actually, along with that sort of bottom of the ocean stuff, another extreme environment which, Jake, I'm sure you know about, are the submarine hydrothermal vents. Yeah. So these are cones of volcanic expulsion deep under the ocean's surface and are, as you might expect, extremely hot with temperatures reaching uh, 110 to 121 degrees Celsius, which for our American listeners is 230 to 250 degrees Fahrenheit. Which you may recognize as being above the temperature that water boils at normal atmospheric pressure. Yes, indeed. Damn. And uh, the water is choked with hydrogen sulfide, which is a chemical toxic to most known organisms. Again, this is just because of the volcanic nature of that uh, region. Um, However, bacteria thrive here. And larger organisms such as snails, shrimp, crabs, tube worms, which look like big lipstick, (laughs) fish, and even octopi, which obviously is volcanoctopus hydrothermalis, (laughs) <laughs> uh, actually it's that. name <laughs> there are so many great names for cephalopods there's also like vampirotuthus yep. infernalis the vampire squid from, from hell, hell. <laughs> <laughs> those are some pretty good names <laughs> octopi are so fucking cool um mm-hmm. but all these things have established themselves in this you know otherwise rather alien ecosystem yeah I mean, on paper, it sounds completely inhospitable and like almost something you might see on another planet. And yet, all of these life forms, which have evolved in other areas of the of our own planet, have adapted to this extreme uh, area. And the cool thing on hydrothermal vents, and I don't know if you're going to talk about it or not, is um, the idea of what's called chemosynthesis as opposed to photosynthesis. So, I mean, we know that plants photosynthesize. They use energy from the sun right. to create food, so they... They take carbon dioxide from the air and water from the ground, and they turn it into sugar by using the energy from the sun and um, sugar and starches. 
And that's where basically absolutely all food on the surface of the earth comes from. Right. Somehow something photosynthesized, made some sugars and stuff, and either that got eaten and we ate that or just the whole, that's the whole food chain. Down there, there's no sun energy at all. Right. And so they derive their energy from the actual chemical compounds coming out of those vents. That is so fascinating. So it's, yes, which is just such an awesome idea. And they've actually, not so recently anymore now, but like within the last 20 years or so, found that in really deep caves, which are so far removed from yes. sunlight and stuff, a lot of things, like so they're, they're kind of an extremophile, troglobites, um, animals that live entirely in caves and never leave and can't leave and they're really well adapted to scavenging the hell out of anything that comes in because right. most of their energy comes from just stuff that drifts in from outside and each other. It's so like, you know, bat guano is a huge source of food. For huh. them. Like it's all this energy that the bats bring in from outside and then huh. along with the in. bats themselves. Yes. Any, any fallen bats, they're immediately food to whatever's right. down there. But, um, they've recently found that in the deepest parts of caves, there are actually these floral mats of bacteria and fungus that are chemosynthesizing using like the actual minerals in the cave itself oh my goodness that's amazing yeah so life as a uh, as ian malcolm once said <laughs> life finds a way <laughs> <laughs> to that end extreme environments and research handling extremophiles offers a very informative avenue for scientists to learn more about how life might look or function elsewhere in the universe mm-hmm. for instance scientists have found bacteria living in the deserts of Antarctica, which are exposed to harmful UV radiation, low temperatures, high salt concentrations, and low mineral concentrations, which are conditions very similar to those in some parts of Mars. Hmm. Research on extremophiles carried out in Japan looked to see whether bacteria could exist under extreme gravity. Um, Hmm. This is getting back to what we were talking about earlier with extremely large planets. So bacteria were grown while being rotated, well, grown isn't exactly the right word, uh, cultured, yeah. while being rotated in an ultra centrifuge, which if you don't know is a machine that essentially spins things around very rapidly, at a speed inducing an effective gravitational force equivalent to 403,623 times the gravity experienced on Earth. Jeez. Wow. You think that was enough? Yeah, (laughs) exactly. Exactly. (laughs) Um, So, and this like blows my mind out of my head, but some species of the bacteria that they tested not only survived, but even thrived in these conditions. Hand in hand with this, in 2016, scientists from Brigham Young University conclusively demonstrated that bacteria's endospores and a bacterial endospore is kind of like a dormant stage for a bacteria they sort of kernelize and uh you know under harsh conditions and it lets them sort of last during periods of deprivation Hmm. from which they can be sort of resuscitated if you will these endospores were able to survive high speed impacts of up to 300 meters per second including Hmm. the extreme shock and extreme deceleration associated with those events as a translation 300 meters per second is around 671 miles per hour or 1080 kilometers per hour okay so the impact would be at that velocity to a dead stop and these spores could you know sustain that and this again supports the feasibility of interplanetary diaspora so again Mm. the panspermia theory a more charismatic form of extreme organism are the tardigrades. Ooh. So these, the water bears. Indeed, the water bears, or as I've most recently learned, the moss piglets. <laughs> <laughs> so well, we have a lot of sources for all this stuff. We're probably going to go lighter on the links this week just because, A, there's so much to, um, to link to, and B... You guys don't click them anyway, so I'm not going to bother. <laughs> yeah. But uh, we will definitely include a picture of a tardigrade because they're, they are pretty cute. Yeah. Uh, they're eight-legged, water-dwelling micro-animals, if that sells you. <laughs> yeah. um, they don't have big eyes, though. They don't look cute that way. They just kind of lump they have this kind of lump like around. Tube mouth thing. Tube mouth things. And I mean, the name tardigrade just means slow stepper. <laughs> they were first discovered back in 1773 by... Here come uh, the slow stepper. <laughs> Tardigrade. <laughs> um, your boy, Johann August Ephraim Goza, obviously. Oh, yeah. We go so, 300 years or more. Um, <laughs> so, tardigrades have been found quite literally everywhere around the globe, hmm. across almost every environment and on just about every continent checked thus far. 
though they are not extremophiles in the sense that they do not rely or exist solely within extreme environments, rely on, I should say, they're still among the most resilient animals known. Depending on the species, tardigrades can survive temperatures as low as negative 272 degrees Celsius, wait, which is wait, 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 wait. just about absolute zero. That's like a degree above absolute zero, Yes, right? exactly. And I mean, they, they die, but they, <laughs> they can stand it for a little while. That's they can, cool. They can sit there and just be like... All right, this doesn't feel very good. I don't enjoy this, but you know what? I'm definitely going to walk away from it if you stop soon. Slowly. Yeah, you better believe I'm going to be walking slowly away as fast (laughs) as I can. (laughs) They can uh, survive temperatures as high as 150 degrees Celsius. Hmm. Pressures almost six times greater than those found in the Marianas Trench. Wow. Exposure to radiation at doses hundreds of times higher than the lethal dose for a human. And even the vacuum of outer space itself. Very cool. In fact, scientists launched these guys along with, you know, other experiments into space and subjected them to what they call the hard vacuum. So they basically just straight up put them outside the ship and either... Fuck you guys. Yeah, see you later. Wait, come back. I need to see what happens to you. (laughs) And they either exposed them to the vacuum of space with or without direct UV exposure as well. Mm. When in the, sh- the quote-unquote sheltered version, <laughs> <laughs> still in an absolute vacuum, they uh, they had a 68% survival rate, That's which is pretty incredible. Good. When exposed to UV, they died off much more severely, but you still had some survivors, which is amazing. Cool. I don't know exactly for how long they did this, but you know the duration of the exposure, I mean to say. Yeah. Another cool thing about tardigrades is that they can go without food or water for more than 30 years. Oh, my God. And they can dry out to the point where they are just 3% or less water. Wow. And can later rehydrate, forage, and even reproduce after that experience. Just bounce right back. No problem. So pretty incredible little buggers. Yeah. They have also survived each of Earth's five mass extinctions. Man. They will almost certainly outlive ours, and they may even outlive our planet <laughs> if they play their tiny little dehydrated cards correctly. <laughs> uh, moss piglets. So, what can't you do? Yeah, sweet little moss piglet. <laughs> so this brings me to the probabilities of life outside of our own planet. Yeah. Obviously, we have a suite of examples of you know terrestrial life that can survive not only incredible environmental pressures, but could maybe in some cases survive, let's say, some sort of interplanetary travel yeah. under the right kinds of conditions. To begin with, we can talk about planets that are actually within the Goldilocks zone, mm-hmm. the CHZ that I was talking about oh, okay, earlier. Okay. And uh, so a 2013 study by, by Ravi Kumar Koparapu, who is a NASA astrobiologist, put the effective fraction of stars with planets in their CHZ at 0.48. This might sound like a small fraction, but it means there may be roughly 95 to 180 billion habitable planets in the Milky Way alone. Damn. And just to sort of extrapolate, the observable universe is estimated to contain between 200 billion to 2 trillion galaxies. So... Our solar system is one of many, many hundreds of thousands, perhaps millions, I guess, within Mm -hmm. the Milky Way, which is our galaxy. And then there are 200 billion to 2 trillion more of those. (laughs) (laughs) So if we extend conservative estimates only, so that's 95 billion planets rather than the 180 billion Mm -hmm. per galaxy at 200 billion galaxies rather than the 2 trillion, we get a conservative, ultra conservative guess of around 1.8 sextillion oh putatively God. habitable planets that's basically 18 with 20 zeros after it for you at home God. across the observable universe it's worth noting that this is just a statistical prediction but it puts into perspective the sort of potentiality for suitable habitat hand in hand with the probability of sort of livable planets we have the drake equation mm-hmm. named for its creator frank drake who punched this up back in 1961 uh, Drake's equation is a probabilistic wager, basically. It's used to d- estimate the number of active, communicative extraterrestrial civilizations just within the Milky Way. Okay, so trying to find, you know, first contact, the kind of aliens we're talking about. Right. Um, Who can send us stories. a text? <laughs> yes. And Drake intended this 
less as an empirical guess and more as kind of a thought project, a uh, means of stimulating the establishment and elaboration of institutions such as SETI, which we mentioned last time, which is the search for extraterrestrial intelligence, mm-hmm. which was sort of in its infancy back in the 60s. Um, I won't get much into the math of it, but the equation handles things that, uh, such as rates of star and planetary formation, fractions of formed stars and planets potentially able to support life. So this is the CHZ stuff and fractions of those life bearing planets in which life actually may go on to elaborate into something intelligent. Okay. So you have all these sort of checks that you can fill in based on your assumptions and predictions and this equation will crank out a, a guess for you. You know, for that very reason, the actual estimated number uh, varies very, very, you know, widely. Yeah, people plug in all kinds of different numbers for each each of the variables in the equation, and it gives totally, totally different results as a result of that. But Right, exactly. And actually, you can do this for yourself if you're interested. Um, there's a Drake equation calculator out there. Uh, you'll have to gather some numbers together for yourself but uh it's available it's kind of cool we'll throw the link up you know based on some estimates it puts between 3500 and 4600 extraterrestrial civilizations in the milky way alone wow again this is more of a sort of you know thought experiment type thing called the thought project earlier but we can also look at this from another angle which is if we assume that the earth is the only planet to host a civilization mm-hmm. of the habitable planets, advanced or otherwise, in our galaxy, the odds of any habitable planet even hosting uh, hosting even just one more intelligent life form would be less than 1.7 times 10 to the negative 11, wow. or basically 1 in 60 billion. Wow. So those are the odds of us being truly the only planet in the just the Milky Way okay. to host intelligent life. So the odds are really against us being the only ones. Exactly. Does this mean that other intelligent life currently exists in the Milky Way? Not necessarily. However, does it mean intelligent life may have previously and or will come to exist in the Milky Way? It kind of sort of does. Cool. So, in short, we really are not alone. Fuck yeah. That's what I'm talking about. So that's, uh, there's... Us sciencing at you harder than we ever have before. You guys just got fucking schooled on it, kind <laughs> of. Hopefully that was still fun. Now, I, hopefully you have a better understanding of um, you know, the different details to consider when you think about aliens visiting Earth. What does that mean in terms of, you know, what what's the likelihood of there being other aliens out there? What's, right. um, what, one thing I thought of when we were prepping for this one is, okay, there are a lot of different factors to consider in terms of the odds of there being life. Um, within you know reachable distance within our galaxy and it being intelligent life and all that stuff one thing i thought of is based on all the different reports of alien abductions and encounters and how different they all are how many different species of extraterrestrials are visiting uh-huh. earth <laughs> I, I wonder those are true. <laughs> is there like some kind yeah, of like big there's some kind of galaxy-wide <laughs> um, society that has all agreed Okay, we're going to go fuck with Earth, but don't tell them. Yeah, exactly. We're like the <laughs> conference center for them. <laughs> so that is our um, our uh, at least first foray into into talking about extraterrestrial stuff. I'm sure we'll yes, come back indeed. to it again. It just happens to be our first time touching it. We thought we'd do it as much justice as we could. Do it right. I, I think it'd be cool to do more of these kind of uh, super duper stitches special reports in the future. Heck yeah. And I like that title <laughs> for them as well. <laughs> um, where we just d- do a deep dive into one particular topic and really explore it in all its right. detail. Unpack the heck out of it. But in the meantime, you know, next week I'm sure we'll, we'll go back to our, our usual format of telling some fun spooky stories at you. I can't wait to see uh, what we uh, what we dig up. If you have your own spooky story, feel free to you know send it to us. Contact right. at superduperstitches dot com or you know right. send us a message on Facebook. Uh, if you want to leave a review on, I, wait, wait, do you hear that? Oh, do you hear that? Uh, oh wait, yes I do. What the hell is that? I don't know. It's weird. Wait, what's that? L- do you see that light coming through the window here? Oh my god! Whoa, what is what that? the fuck is this? Oh jeez! Oh, oh. Jake, oh, you god. okay? Yeah, are you okay? Huh. Jake, what are those things? Oh, my god. Wyatt, are they ugly? Dude, they... they aren't men. They aren't men. They are horrible. Would you not agree? Yes, I would. Ah. Oh, my God. What are you doing Whoa. to us? Whoa. Get away from me. I've got the mics. Jake, grab the mixer. I got it. I got it. Get a laptop. Oh, my God. Oh. Ah.